This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Emily Esterson from Coverside, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. And I'm Tara Tibbetts coming to you from Fort Worth, Texas. And you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network. This one is for July 18th, 2019, episode 2228. This episode is brought to you by Coverside Magazine. Good morning, Horse World. This is our monthly special episode about fox hunting. We come to you on the third Thursday of every month. And coming up on today's show, we're going to chit-chat a little bit about thoroughbreds off the track, hitting the hunt field with Dale Cementon, and Paul Wilson from Keswick Hunt Club is going to regale us with foxhound stories, including puppy talk. I can't wait. Yay, puppies. Yay, puppies. <laughs> Do either of you have any new puppies since we talked last? Because I think every episode, somebody has a new puppy. By somebody, you mean me. <laughs> <laughs> and? Because, yes. Well, and I I can't remember. did At the last episode, did I have my um, shelter hound? Did I have Huck? I think you did. I think mm. you did have your shelter hound. Okay, so I have Huck. You also have Linda. Linda, Linda's a permanent addition. Huck is a foster. So he, he's got to go through some more vetting and then he'll be available for adoption. So if anybody follows me on social media, you'll see stuff about Huck and, and he's lovely. I, he's, he's a hound of some sort. He's not a fox hound. We're, we're guessing he's a walker hound of some kind, but he's super sweet. And then last night I picked up, um, a, I kind of think she might be a Chihuahua Dachshund cross. We don't Whoa. really know. She's a shelter dog, and she has five adorable puppies that look like border collies, but considering she's about 15 pounds and they're little tiny puppies, three of the five have curly hair and two look kind of like Chihuahua dogs. So we'll see. We'll see what they those turn into. It's going to be a crazy mixed up blended family. Yes. Yep. Crazy mixed up blend. I only have one right now. Old Dookie, my retired foxhound. But you never know, you know, there's always a dog in my future. Another dog, probably a hound. (laughs) Well, and I I had the pleasure of meeting Dookie. You did. And how did that happen? Tell me. So I went on a, a trip with my girlfriends. We drove out to Santa Fe last week and I got in touch with Emily before a couple weeks before, and I got to go out and exercise hounds with Cosa Ladrone and Emily. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Now it, for at your hunt, Emily, um, mm-hmm. is hound exercise always mounted? Is it sometimes mounted and sometimes on foot? Give me the lowdown. So it's been, it's evolved over the years. Um, now it is mounted and we used to do it on foot, uh, because the hounds would summer 
at their summer home in southern New Mexico, mm-hmm. which is actually closer to to where I live. And we would um, we would drive down there and we'd take them out on bikes. We'd go out on our mountain bikes and take them out. And sometimes we would walk them by hand. And the farm where they were was um, was really beautiful right down by the Rio Grande river. And so we would love, it was really fun because we would take them to the river and let them swim around in the ditches. And, uh, and that was great. Now where they are now, which is at Hippico Santa Fe, we take them out on horseback because there's tons of land all around us. There's public land. So we just go through the gate and go up the hill. And unfortunately it was super hot when Tara came out with us. So we didn't go very far. Um, we still got they to say the top super of the hot, hill. and I thought it was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, for, yeah. for the uninitiated, could mm-hmm. you just give us Hound Walking 101? What is it, and what is the goal when one takes Hounds Walking? Because it's, it's not the same as when you take your dog for a walk. You know? No, we do hound exercise. And so how it works for us is that there's usually... Uh, on any, we do it three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And on any given day, there's two or three, or maybe more, um, usually more on Saturday. Sometimes there's just two or three of us on the weekdays, whoever can sort of spring free and we will couple the hounds to each other so that they are in pairs of two. And some of the older guys or more experienced guys don't have to be coupled, but, um, but we couple them and, And this is also a good way that we'll hear also on the show today about puppies, but this is a good way to introduce the young entry into pack life and to teach them to stay with their brethren and, you know, to kind of hang out with each other. So, um, so we couple them up and then we walk, um, we walk and trot mostly. And a lot of times they'll want to stop and sit in the shade or, you know, if it's hot or if not, sometimes we take them up. There's a cattle tank about, um, another mile up the hill where we were Tara and on a good day, on a good rain year, there's water in the tank. And so we'll take them up there and they can swim around, um, in the pond, which is always fun. And, um, and then we come back and it's probably about the total on a, on a cool morning. We'll probably go about three and a half to four miles, um, with the hounds. And, you know, on a hotter day, we don't go quite so far. So that's what hound exercise is. And um, it gets longer and more vigorous as we get closer to the season and as the weather cools off. And, uh, and then it kind of backs down quite a bit in, in spring and summer. And it's, it's quieter. And then, you know, around next month, we'll start, you know, we'll start to move a little faster, go a little farther, trot more. Mm-hmm. Um so that's that's how we do it. And my understanding is in the weather in Santa Fe, um, of the, one of the friends I was with was in Albuquerque, and she said that it pretty consistently now will start cooling off. Yeah. Whereas for like us here in Texas, we're we're going to literally roast through August. So yeah, yeah June is June's our hottest month, and like we're having we're having a pretty normal day today where, you know, it was hot, hot in the morning and now it's clouded over and, um, it's threatening to rain. And, and that's pretty normal for us this time of year, around about early July, it starts to rain in the afternoon, the monsoons come in and it cools off quite a bit. Um, 
And the, so, the day yeah. we walked hounds, um, exercised hounds, it did, it rained when, when I got to lunch, I met my friends for lunch afterwards and it poured rain during lunch. So it yeah. cooled off tremendously, but I will say while we were out, the hounds were wonderfully behaved and we had a really, I had a great time chatting with the causal drone folks and I got a, I snapped a photo of a horned frog, which I was really delighted because I went to graduate school at Texas Christian university and our uh, mascot is a horned frog. Yeah. That's so are, that's it's random. one of the things, it's actually one of the things that we do when we go out on hound exercises, look for horny toads. We love them. Yes. So, yep. Have you seen one, Jen? I couldn't tell you if I have or not. I think we're going to have to put a picture of one in the show notes because they're kind of like kind of crazy cool. I thought it was like a rock that was moving and it was, oh, no, that that's a horny toad. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I do not have um, a lot of knowledge when it comes to toads and frogs. I know that we have teensy weensy little pencil eraser sized ones here that hop all over the ground at dawn when you walk across and it looks like the ground is alive. Yeah. We have those. These don't hop, though. They don't. They're not. They're really not toad-like. They're more lizard-like. Really? Yeah. I need a picture yeah. of that because I don't. Yeah. I can't relate at this point. Yeah. But it's just you. You know, I've had. Um, I, I feel like it's been the the amazing fortune in the last year. I've hunted in North and South Carolina, and I went hunting in Montana. And now I got to go hunting in New Mexico and in Texas. You know, none of which are very traditional hunting sites locations, you know, outside of Virginia. And it's just, it's fascinating how the opportunity to go hunting, you know, you see different wildlife and the terrain is so different. And it really, you can tell how it really colors the difference between the, you know, the ambiance, I would say of how the different hunts function. And I think it's awesome and fascinating. You're right. That is, that is interesting. And I think that is something that's unique to the United States versus in Europe because our landscape is so diverse and even culturally, we're so diverse yes. compared to a lot of other places that it does. It's 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 very nearly a different sport when you by the time you get the whole way across the country. It's so so many different flavors of fox hunting. Yeah. Yes. So and the four of us things. riding, you know, Emily, what breed is Lucy? Uh, she's a Connemara quarter horse. So we had a Connemara quarter horse. I was riding an appendix quarter horse. Um, Elsa was riding a thoroughbred and Connor was riding a Mustang. Yep. Yep. And that's cool. about what you would see in our hunt field on a, yeah, on a I love it. Yet yeah. Another, love yet it. another job. Mustangs can be great at. Oh, Ooh. this horse is a Connor's horse is cool. He is cool. And he's like 18 and she just got him and he's like, okay, I'm whipping in now. <laughs> like, wow. Like, there was like no so chill, happy, like. Like neat, neat, neat horse. It's, it's, and that's what I've loved about everywhere I've gone. And, you know, we'll talk to Dale a little bit and, and I hunted with someone in Montana who bought a thoroughbred from Dale. So it's, 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 I love it. It's it's wonderful. I love hunting. It's my favorite thing. Even our guests today exemplify that diversity within the fox hunting community. Paul, in the tradition of American um, huntsman, is of course not American. He is from England, so he has an awesome accent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Dale, being a proper Northwesterner, he sounds awesome also. So we have great voices and great accents on today's show. And speaking of great voices and great accents from all over the country that relate to fox hunting, what's going on and what's coming up in Coverside? 
Well, this coming issue, which we are just starting to work on right now, we have a really fun story about uh, drag hunting seminar. And if you uh, don't know what drag hunting is, it's when you lay a scent on the ground and you follow the hounds follow that scent. It's they don't actually follow an animal; they follow a manufactured scent. And so there's a good story about that in um, in the upcoming issue. We also have a really fun story in the spirit of Dookie um, about a house hound who likes to ride around in a convertible. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's a really lovely piece about um, a woman who adopted a hound from a hunt and and how this hound kind of became an ambassador for fox hunting, which absolutely happens. Like, that totally happens. Once you have a hound and you start getting out and about, all of a sudden you start talking about fox hunting with people, which They're is great. They're great conversation starters. They are. They are. I take uh, Duke up to this big horse facility every Saturday, which is where our kennels are, and people are always asking me about him. What breed is he? You know, what do you do with them? And it, they're great conversation starters. I think foxhounds are one of those dogs that people see it and they go, that's a familiar, it's familiar, but I don't know what it is. They yes. think they're giant beagles. They think yeah, they're giant I, beagles. Yeah. I just laugh because Duke weighs a hundred pounds. Oh they're my like, gosh. They're like, is he a beagle? I'm like, no. <laughs> no. He, he is a, a big hound. He is a big hound. Yeah. He's really wow. big. So... And also what else is coming up? We've got um, some really nice stories about uh, about the huntsman, Cammy Walk, who actually hunts sometimes in a side. Really? She's in a side saddle. Yes. We have a great picture of her. And that's our Ask the Huntsman column. And we have um, a nice story about uh, a trip to Africa. And this is interesting because hunt clubs um, – often people become so close to each other in hunt clubs that they travel together. And so we've started running this column in the magazine about hunt clubs that go different places like, uh, you know, like New Zealand and Africa and, and the adventures that they have. So, well, Mike Renee, we talked to last month. She takes a group to Ireland. That's awesome. That's right. Yep. Yep. And I know a group in, in, um, in Colorado in Arapaho that they go to France and hunt. So that is definitely on my bucket list. Yeah, for sure. How cool. There's so much cool stuff coming up in Coverside Magazine. Where can people get Coverside Magazine? How do they get eCoverside? How do they sign up? You can find Coverside online at eCoverside.net or at issuu.com slash eCoverside. That's the digital edition of the magazine. Or they can go to the MFHA.com website and they can subscribe to the magazine, which that way you get a beautiful hard copy in your mailbox, which, of course, I'm a big fan of hard copy print. So um, that's what you have to do to get it. I discovered something. Everyone should have at least one hard copy magazine subscription. And here's why. When the power goes out, you can't surf. You have to entertain yourself with something and you need a freaking magazine. <laughs> About a month ago, our power went out. I could not find a magazine to read my house. <laughs> you got to come over to my house. I have hundreds of well, them. I bet you do. And by the way, Coverside is spelled, the, spelled like covert, C-O-V-E-R-T as in Tom, side. Right. And I'm exactly. pretty sure if you, if you type into your Google, 
covered side magazine, you're going to get everything you need right there at the top. That's absolutely true. There we go. So, yeah, that's, that's how it's going to work. Yeah, you, you guys have good SEO over there at Coverside. We we work hard on it. <laughs> work hard on it. You do. You work very hard over there at Coverside Magazine. Thank you. And coming up, I think it's time to talk to our first guest from Gate to Great. Say that three times fast. Horse Creek Thoroughbreds in North Dakota. Hey Dale, I'm uh, I'm here with Dale Simonton of Gate to Great Thoroughbreds. And we are going to talk today with Dale about thoroughbreds for fox hunting and his method of getting thoroughbreds off the track and turning them into fox hunters. And I know you've done quite a few of these. How many do you think you, you've sold to fox hunters over the years? Oh, boy. Um, maybe a couple hundred. Wow, that's a lot. No idea it was that many. So tell us about how, how you identify thoroughbreds um, to, to pick up off the racetrack and how you decide what job they should have. Well, I, I, I don't really decide what job they should have until I've ridden them for maybe a summer. Uh, I, I, I get most of my horses because um, People back east that I deal with have a pretty good idea what kind of horse I like. And they call me when they have one. So mm-hmm. that that kind of takes care of itself. So they, uh, what, what kind of horse do you like? Well, I like the speed horse types. Um, little thicker made better ranch horse type horses. Um, they're, they're not quite as big. I like to keep them under 16 hands. I, I don't, I don't just reject them because they're bigger than that. I just, I don't get that many. I think, I think out of 11 horses I have here now, I have, two of them that are 16 hands. The, the, rest, the rest of them are all under that. Under smaller, smaller horses. Yep. And I, that way I get a, I get, I kind of get my pick of horses. I don't have to, I don't have to compete with the hunter jumpers or the three day eventers seem to like bigger horses. And, um, the polo people like, fillies and mares so i have a little wider range of horses i can that i can choose from dale this is tara and i i'm actually from i grew up in eastern montana um my family had quarter horses some quarter horse race horses but um, i'm curious when you when you're sourcing horses are you more looking for something that you think you might want to keep as a ranch horse and then some of them end up as fox hunters um, or are you going more for, um, you kind of have an idea of you have a, a, a market that kind of spans array and just, and I'm curious about that just because I know a lot of English riders and fox hunters that I know like a little bit bigger horse, but then possibly some like a little smaller horse. Um, most of them tell you they want a bigger horse, but then when they see them, they think they're bigger, uh, <laughs> 
most people don't have any idea how big a horse is. It's true. I I, I have people that uh, I can get on a horse and and ride him through a pen of cattle, and he's he's fifteen two, and they'll say, "Oh my God, how do you get on that big long legged horse?" Um, I, I, it's uh, they are what they are, and and the if a horse takes up a lot of leg, he'll fit a bigger rider anyway. Um, you can take a 16 two-hand horse, and if he's built like a culvert, a tall person isn't gonna isn't gonna feel good on him. And I can identify oh. that with that exactly. I have an off-the-track thoroughbred who's 16 two. And he's he's a narrower horse, and he's young. He's only five, and I have a sixteen-hand warm blood mare, and she takes up way more leg than he does. <laughs> well, sure, if they're deeper, I, I've got a horse here that's oh, he with shoes on, he might make sixteen hands, but he's real deep. Um, he's uh, he'll take up a lot of leg, and he's a he's a, a big, wide, rugged thing. Um, he's going to make a nice horse for somebody. I don't know if he'll make a fox hunter yet. I haven't had him around calves or, um, or dogs or anything. I think he'll be okay, but we'll, we'll know in a year or so. So Dale, how do you, um, how do you think the ranch work that you do with horses translates into fox hunting? Like how does that how does that connection get made for the horses? I I think I really you see there's most disciplines anymore are specialized. Um, you you can teach them everything they need to know about it in a in an arena, like your hunter jumpers or even race horses. Uh, you can stay right at the racetrack. They don't need to go anywhere else to learn their job. Rope horses are the same way. Bulldogging horses, all, uh, all kinds of rodeo horses, barrel horses. They don't know what to do when they get outside. You can't do that with a fox hunter. Um, uh, they've got to know. They've got to know what the country looks like. And be able to get through country. And and ranch horses, especially. These horses, where I do so much day work, I never know what kind of country I'm going to be riding in. It might be open prairie, it might be mountains, it might be uh, lava rock. You, you just never know. So they, they've it's such a diverse uh, uh, training regimen that most of the horses, when I sell somebody a, a horse and and they're looking for a fox hunter. Uh, they've been there and done that. They've had they've had calves, maybe, maybe three hundred calves, uh, in a bunch underneath them, you know, and and all all things like that can really be unnerving for a horse still until he gets used to it. Uh, it it's a it's a good foundation for for any discipline, even even rodeo horses, hunters. I don't I don't care what they do, if. If they had a couple of years on the ranch, they'd be better at what they go do. You know, you take a a, a million dollar uh, show jumper, he'd be a better horse if he had a better foundation. He might be worth two million. So those calves underfoot, you know, that kind of mimics the dogs too. I guess you know exactly. the fox hounds. Yeah. 
Do you have dogs exactly. that you introduce them to? Oh, I, <laughs> I've got a dog that, that, uh, helps me quite a bit. Um, and she rides in the trailer with my horses. Um, my boss that I go, I go to Colony, Wyoming and help a friend of mine over there. Oh, eight months out of the year, probably two or three days a week. And he's got a couple dogs. So there's always dogs under them. If I, if I wind up, I sold one last spring um, to a rancher and he just absolutely loves him, but he was 13 years old. So that kind of puts him out of the fox hunter market, you know, and, and, and that's, that's what a rancher is looking for. Something that's been there and done that. Um, the, the fox hunters like a horse that's, Oh, six to six to ten years old is is about the limit. So uh, they're all they're all looking for something different. Um, some of them are looking for a horse that's going to babysit them, and and then you run into people that just ride better, and and or maybe they just think they do. Um, but they're they're looking for a horse that that did and and. And they're pretty good anymore about telling me if they're a first flight rider uh, or or a whipper. Um, most of these horses have, have didn't take any further training. They just went to hunting. Yeah, yeah. So um, I know you came down and hunted with us uh, this winter, and uh, was it this winter? Or was it last winter? I can't remember now. Uh, I think it was three years ago now. Was it three years ago? That was on our honeymoon. (laughs) Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, it was three years ago. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. Time flies. Um, And, (laughs) you know, it's it's hard for you to get out to hunts where you you live in South Dakota. You know, it's, I can't, it it must be tough. I mean, people come to see you out there at the ranch to buy your, your horses. Yeah, they, you know, I... I have a lot of people that come and and ride, and I've sold a lot of horses sight unseen too. Wow! Um, yeah. People people call or and they might might see a video. I um, I sold two horses to Gretchen Bickle uh, just from from photos. She yeah. never saw a video of them, and spent a lot of money on them and. Well, Gretchen said, I've bought two horses sight unseen in my life, and they were both home runs. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Gretchen's with uh, Live Oak, right? Live Oak Hounds in Florida. Right, Georgia. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And then uh, I, they... sold her, I sold her another horse that, oh, he was an awful thing. Um, I, I took him the first time I got outside on him. I didn't have, I mean, the wind was just howling. It was probably 45, 50 miles an hour. Um, and we left and went up on the top of this. It was, it wasn't quite a cliff, (laughs) but but it wasn't a hill either. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Linda Birch and I went through this little bitty gate. And I opened the gate and and this horse was snorting and just breathing fire. He was a big, beautiful black horse with stocking legs and 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 he <laughs> he was just bug eyed and and Linda says, you've got to be crazy. I said, well, I think he'll start watching his feet by the time I get to the bottom. And, <laughs> and we rode over the edge of that. Uh, I mean, it, <laughs> I can't believe I did it today. But the only thing I knew about that horse was that I was going to have a better horse when I got back than I was when I left. <laughs> <laughs> Wet saddle blankets. Isn't that what you say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the time we got, by the time we got done, it had flooded. Um, we were on, on a horse creek flat and all the fences, the barbed wire fences had, had hay hanging over them. So you could see the top wire. By the time we got done that day, we were jumping barbed wire fences. <laughs> he was a, he, he was a, a really fun horse, but he didn't, he, he didn't turn out to, for a fox hunter because he, he was kicking hounds. Mm, yeah. That's a big no, no so, with uh, the fox hunters. They, right. Uh, the minute they start Especially kicking. Especially in Daffy Woods. <laughs> right. Yep. That's true. <laughs> On any hunt, the minute they start kicking the hounds, they're out. So. Yep. Yeah. Yep. She, she called and said, this horse isn't going to work. She said, um, do you want him back? I said, no, I'll just give him to somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so, Dale, I don't, we haven't really talked about it. I know, I know some of our listeners have heard interviews with you, but tell us a little bit about your operation and what your horses, kind of the education they get before they go become a fox hunter. Well, um, it, I, I ride them depending on the horse, you know, some are, some of them come around quicker than others. Uh, I, I usually turn them out when they get here for anywhere from depending on why they get here too, how, how crippled up they are. It's, I turn them out for anywhere from two to six months. And you're not on 10 acres, um, right? Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I've got three or four horses here that are in their own 10 acres. <laughs> Um, but I, I turn them out for anywhere from two to six months and just let them be horses and heal up. So when I, when I get them in, I'll usually ride them maybe five minutes in the round pen. And then I just take off and I, I've kind of got a, a, an obstacle course out here that I, I ride through in the, the first ride. I just, if I can just get them to walk, that that's all I, all I ask of them. And I might have to do a lot of flexing until their feet quit moving, you know, to, to get that, that jigging and racy crap out of their system. And usually in a couple of hours, they're they're walking out pretty nice. And, but you've and got you've got a, some cattle, right? Just enough to torment with my horses. <laughs> so 
So you're you're kind of riding them a little bit, and then once once you feel like they're ready, you kind of get them out there with the cattle. That's usually that's the second ride. Okay. Um, I I if and it, it I have I keep some some Jersey steers around here to train with too, and and a lot of times I'll pin those steers and and just start following them around, roping them. Um, and it, it, it grabs their focus, gives you a pretty good idea if they're kind of cowy or not. Some of them, most of them just pin their ears and go to work. And it, 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 it really gives them something to think about besides prancing and dancing. And, and then I'll start taking them for long rides outside. And then with if, if I can go gather my cows, I've got about 30 head over here now. If I can go gather those cows and pen them, they're ready to go to work someplace. And then I have to have them kind of so I can get something done on them or I really can't go charge somebody to do his work, you know. Right. So do you, do you mostly get what we call war horses that have a lot of starts or do you get young horses also? And do you treat them differently if they're an older war horse versus a three or four year old? The, the old horse might get uh, six months off instead of two, you know. Um, I, I kind of like the horses that had lots of races best. Why they, is that? They... Well, they've just been there and done that. They come around quicker. It, it's hard to show them something that they can't deal with. And you don't find that they necessarily, because I, I think one of the stereotypes people think of, especially with off-the-track thoroughbreds that have lots of starts, that they're broken. So you don't you don't find that you necessarily have maybe more soundness issues with those horses, or do you just maintain them differently? Uh, I, honestly, I think you find less soundness issues. It's been my experience. Uh, um, most of them stayed around a long time because they were sound. Uh, it, it, they've just, they just, they give up on them because they slow down. I've got, um, oh, mostly, mostly all war horses. I get, I get horses from, from some of these Indian relay teams. And now those are really war horses. <laughs> but they're not really, are they used hard or they just have a lot of experience? They've, they're, I, I'll tell you what, I like them. They've, they've been, they've been there and done it. They, they, uh, I've, I've got a horse here. That's one of my, one of my very favorite horses. And he was a war horse to begin with. He had 50-some starts on the racetrack and three years on a relay team. And he's 13 years old, and and I don't think there's a thing in the world he can't do. Do they get those horses off the track, or do they raise them? Oh, no, they go get them off the track. They, they buy them um, down at Denver and Los Alamos. Uh, and in uh, uh, Canterbury, they they go around. This horse came out of Nebraska, 
he was bought at Keeneland as a yearling. Oh, wow. So he, was he inexpensive, Keeneland? No, a cheap horse, really. He was, he's by posse. I think they, I think he was a, like a $10,000 yearling. Oh, so that's. Um, he, he was up, he was kind of the bottom row at Keeneland. I've got a horse here that he's been all over the world. The, the Arabs gave him to me, paid, they paid $550,000 for him. Um, and he, he looks the part too. He's just stunning. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous. So His Dale. His name is Salal. Salal? S-A-L-L-A-L? S-A-L-L-A-L, I believe. He was named after an Israeli artist. Hmm. I I call him King. King. So I've got a question for you real quick. Do you have a favorite fox hunter that you've sold to someone? Oh, a couple, I think. Um, Duck would still be one of my favorites. Yeah. He's kind of famous. Yeah, Gretchen still has him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Relay was a favorite too. He he just I, I bought him I bought him off a relay team. Um this this uh this guy told me about him over the phone. He wanted to trade him. He was he was uh looking for a an old car. <laughs> he wanted to trade this horse for anything of value, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wound up giving up a hundred bucks for him. And I, when he unloaded him out of the trailer, he was thin. And I looked at his feet, and then I thought, I just, I just hit the jackpot. Huh. And he he told me he said he, he I don't know what's wrong with him I think the mother horses are picking on him he just keeps on getting hurt and <laughs> and he he had a he had a blowout and two in some in in a couple of feet three different feet he had abscesses where he blew out wow and I asked him if he I I said is he how is he to shoe well we've never put shoes on him. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that all I did, I put him in the barn. I left him in the barn overnight, and I nailed a set of shoes on him, and he walked out of the barn sound. Mm. Uh, I call, I named him Relay, and a, a fox hunter from New Jersey bought him and took him to Reno. Oh, to Red Rock. You, oh, Red you, Rock. You, yeah. You, yeah, exactly. You might have seen him. Uh, rich pie. Okay. Yeah. Hunt, hunt him. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, rich, I moved cattle rich. with rich in May. Yeah. Okay. Rich rode him here. He flew here and rented a car, drove out from rapid. And he, he, we went and rode around, chased some cattle and stuff and loped through the bushes. And, and he said, well, Let's see what the vet says. So um, we had the vet. She showed up here about an hour later and and uh, x-rayed him, and he looked good. And 
Rich bought him and I delivered him to Reno. And I think he hunted him a, a week after I hauled him down there. Great. So we're, we're running out of time here, Dale. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. We really appreciate your time today. It was awesome. Thank you for talking to us about Gate to Great and your your horse horsemanship and racehorses. And it's been awesome. <laughs> well, it's been good talking to you. And where, where do we find you? Uh, uh, can we find you on the web? Uh, uh, we have a website, gatetogreat.com. There you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and you also have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash gatetogreat. Well, thanks so much for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. That computer seems to be telling us just what we want to hear. I love puppies, and I think our term of the month has something to do with puppies, doesn't it? It does, and I did it in the spirit of of, of talking, you know, having talking to Paul today about puppies. But and this is a word that I've been around some dog breeders, and I'd heard it before, but it's it's the word whelp. And I actually got the the definition off the Keswick Hunt Club glossary, and the definition they say is a young puppy or to bear puppies. And so I, I've heard it more often, like to whelp puppies is like to have them. I didn't. I haven't heard it as much as to refer to a puppy as a whelp. Have y'all heard that? I have. Yeah. We refer yeah. to ours as whelps. Yep. I, I, not, I did not know whelp could be a noun. Whelp is a noun. Yes. And speaking of puppies, it's time for our next guest. So today we have with us Paul Wilson from Keswick. Paul, we wanted to chat with you a little bit today about specifically about puppy stuff, but I'd like to get started with if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us a little bit about Keswick, how long you've been there, and kind of your role with Keswick. Okay, well, um, I've been doing this job since 1993. Um, I started my career in England um, at a little pack in the West Country of England. Uh, called East Devon Foxhounds. Um, I'd previously done a bit with horses and whatnot before that um, for a master over in Hampshire. But uh, from from there, we went to East Devon. I stayed at East Devon. I was on the lowest lowest totem pole, basically. I was a kennelman groom slash whipper in, so I kind of did a bit of everything. Um, got to hunt a little bit, but not a tremendous amount. Um, stayed there a couple of seasons. From there, I went to um, a little pack of West Country Harriers called the Mudbury Harriers, and they're they're pretty little hounds, actually. A lot of people probably will be familiar with the Studbook Harrier, which is a heavy tricolored hound, um, kind of like a shrunk down, more refined old English hound. But the West Country Harrier is quite different. Um, they tend to be, on the most part, very uh, light colored, predominantly white, sometimes some lemon markings. Um, but uh, really, really nice, attractive little hounds, busy little hounds. Um, and despite being harriers, they actually hunted foxes. Uh, so we stayed there a couple of seasons, had a lot of fun down in there. And then I actually went and whipped in to a pack of studbook harriers, which was up in the north, uh, northwest, uh, the Vale of Loon harriers, which is, it, it uh, shares its country with the Loonsdale foxhounds, which are a fell pack. They hunt them on foot. Um, oh. From there... From there, we moved, or I moved to Scotland, to the furthest, most northern 
registered pack of foxhounds, the five foxhounds, and whipped in to a gentleman called Mark Dredge, who subsequently came across to America at the same time as another friend of mine uh, back in 2000, and he came to be uh, uh, Mr. Hardaway down at down at the Midland. He came down to be his kennel huntsman. Um, have learned an awful lot from Mark. Mark's a very, very good hound man. Um, so from there, I uh, I went to Ireland and whipped in Kildare Foxhounds for a couple of seasons. And from Kildare, I went to Rome in Italy um, and hunted the Rome Foxhounds. That was my first huntsman's job at 24. Um, at Do they hunt in Italy the same as in, in England and Ireland? Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> just the same. Um, wonderful, wonderful country, beautiful countryside. Um, a lot of ditches, a lot of, um, banks, uh, stone walls, and something called, they call them stachinata, which is a chestnut rail. Um, a lot of that. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. Stayed there for five seasons, had a tremendous amount of fun, and then came across to here, came to Pennsylvania. I only stayed at uh, a little place, the Saxonburg hunt up in Pennsylvania, stayed there a season, um, I didn't really much care for it there, so um, I got offered a job up in Canada um, at the Hamilton Hunt. I uh, was there a couple of years and then got headhunted by the London Hunt and was there 10 years. And then from London, um, I got offered the position down here in Keswick. So I've been here. This is coming into my third season here at Keswick now. So when you say so, the London Hunt, is that London... England or London and Canada? No, L- London, Canada, London, Canada. Yeah, it's okay. very, London is London is about um, about an hour northeast of Detroit, just over the ah. border. So it's in the flatlands down there. A tremendous amount of corn and beans. Um, we had a lot of fun. We hunt coyotes there. Um, just yeah, about as much fun as you can have with your clothes on, really. <laughs> Lots of fun. So. You've been at Keswick for three seasons now, and this I've two seasons. This is I'm entering my third now. So entering your third, okay. Yeah. And and I follow you on Instagram, and I have for okay. a while, and that's kind of how I found you. And um, right. I'm I, I consider myself a relatively newbie fox hunt fox hunter. I'm in Texas, and I've been hunting for I think this will be my tenth season, ninth or tenth season. But um, so specifically. We wanted to talk to you about puppies. I mean, I know summer right. is a big time for puppies, both, you know, usually the, the litters are born and then you start working with them in the summer. So have you been able to be involved a little bit in the breeding choices with Keswick or is that more yeah. masters yeah. driven? Um, I am very fortunate. I did know, I did know my predecessor. I knew him quite well. So I knew a, a, a tremendous amount of the bloodlines that were here at Keswick and I'd used them um, in London. we they were a crossbred pack. Um, the masters were more <clears throat> of the, they, they preferred the English type. But as I, as I stay, as over a period of time, I kind of won them over a bit more to, to the American blood, especially what, what Tony had been breeding here at Keswick. And they kind of, over time, they, they kind of got to appreciate what the American hounds and specifically the strains that, the Bywater strains that, <clears throat> Tony had been breeding. They they, they appreciated them uh, for what they were and what they brought to the table, especially up in London. So 
when I came here and took over here, I was I, I was very familiar with the vast majority of the bloodlines here and the masters that took the mastership on the same time as I took over the uh, the huntsman's position. They were all, they were all familiar with the fact that I knew a lot of the lines, so they trusted me with the lines. So uh, basically. I've, with, I mean, I always consult with the masters, and I always, I'll always kind of um, explain why I've bred something. And the main main master that I liaise with is Nancy Wiley. She's very good. She 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 asks questions. She say, well, what what do you think about this? And I'll say, well, you know, yeah, that one's a little bit lacking in this department or this one. I, I and and then make a suggestion of well, this could possibly be a better better a better cross. You know, you have to kind of. First and foremost, you have to look at what they do in the field, and then once you look in the field, then you can look at pedigree and see how the pedigrees all match up and and try and make it all work. So it's 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 a collaborative thing, but basically at the end of the day, you know the puck stops with me. I mean it's uh, it's it's my choices really at the end of the day, and obviously I will listen to if Nancy says, well I'd rather we didn't do that, then you know at the end of the day she's a boss. So, but she she respects and understands that. You know, I, I'm there, you know, 24-7 where she sees them for, you know, the days we go hunting kind of thing, you know. And it's not just completely all about the hunting. You, you get to know an awful lot about hounds just working with them day in, day out. Well, one thing so, I'm always curious about, so I, I hunt with Brazos Valley Hounds and, you know, we show our hounds and that's that's yeah. a big part of our hunt. And so I'm always curious with different hunts, how much of your breeding selections are just specifically hunting focused or if you show your hounds, if you look for something a little bit different with maybe a litter that you might be looking for a good hunting hound that can show, or do you, where, where are you in that? I think our aim should always be hunting. I mean, for us at Keswick, we hunt anywhere from last year was a terrible, terrible season just purely because it was so wet. And I think the, the weather, the yeah. The just decimated everyone's season. I mean, it was horrible but typically they'll hunt here between 90 and 110 days we do a lot of days yeah so first and foremost they have to hunt you know we we go to virginia i mean in years past they may have gone to the carolinas so they and they may even go Bryn Mawr, you know so i mean three days so but i am a firm believer and as you know uh looking at my my instagram i i breed Whippets and I breed um, Border Terriers and I work and hunt both of them as well. I absolutely 100% agree that you need to breed correct confirmation. Correct confirmation goes hand in hand with the longevity of a hunting hound's life. If the whole idea of good confirmation is for the for the for the hound to expel the least amount of energy and cover the most amount of ground, and if they're poorly put together they're going to expel more energy to do the same work that a, that a hound that is well put together is doing and using half the energy. So it, they go hand in hand, hand in hand with one another. That being said, a very good hound will overcome its inadequacies. It's still going to hunt, but why make things hard for it? You know, if you can breed the best confirmationally correct hound, uh, then why not do that? There's there's no sense in breeding a bunch of ugly, bad, bad confirmation hounds that, you know, it costs you just as much to feed and maintain and veterinary costs for, for poorly put together hounds, if not more, because 
you know, one one of the things I, that I noticed a lot in the Maritimes, I've noticed for a lot of years, is how terribly straight they are in the rear end. There isn't a lot of angulation in the rear. So what I'm what I'm talking about is the way it comes down into the second thigh. You should have a nice slope and, and a nice definition of second thigh and a, and a nice let down small short hock. I often see a lot of Americans very very straight in the rear, and mm. that is it's where your power comes from. And but second, but but another point being is you get when you when they're that straight behind you get a lot of cruciate, cruciate ligament problems. So, yeah. you know, it's they all go hand in hand with with one another. So, you know, why not why not breed a decent, well put together hound in the first place? Whenever I I breed a bitch, yeah, I look at the the hunting side of things. I look at the pedigree, but I also look at the physical attributes of the hound. I bred a I bred a bitch this time around, a bit sports Jenny, and she's a little straight behind, not horribly straight behind, and she's never. No, it's never affected her in her work. But she's a little straight behind. She's a little short in the back. Um, and then taking into account her hunting abilities, I bred it to a dog who is a little longer in the back, has beautiful angulation behind, but is a hell of a hunting hand. So I'm trying to offset her inadequacies, her inadequacies, in, I can't even say the word, inadequacies with that that particular dog and that dog is maybe a little too long you know so with her being a little bit short it you know you, you, you at the end of the day it's that that old that your race or saying you breed the best of the best and hope for the best and yeah. you know that's basically what we're trying to do is trying to trying to get everything to gel as it should be the the form and function the form and function element of breeding Absolutely. doesn't matter whether it's a hound or a horse it's the same Absolutely. The same concept Absolutely. so or did Jenny have puppies yet did Jenny have yeah, her puppies Jenny, yeah Jenny's had a puppy so we we bred um, five five litters this year um, first litter was was an absolute disaster the bitch was just horrible she had a real rough time whelping. And she only ended up with one surviving puppy. Um, so then I bred another bitch um, who was an older bitch. She was just she was about ready to um, to retire. She has, she has actually retired. Actually, she's gone to one of our members' places up in Sperryville. Um, but uh, she's an older bitch, so I wasn't too hopeful as to whether she would be able to raise them. She, um, my predecessor, bred her twice and had only managed to get a couple of pups out of her in the past. And I thought, you know what it is? She's such a good bitch. We'll, we'll try again. Um, <clears throat> so I bred her to the same dog that, that Tony had bred her uh, the last time and managed to get two pups out of her. And the one bitch that I ended my first season, she was a bit, the first season, she was a bit, nah, you know, she's nothing special. But last year, she just lit, lit it up. I mean, she was just fantastic. And I think that was my deciding point as to why I would try again. So we bred her anyway. Long story short, we got five pups from her. Um, and then we bred Jenny. Jenny has four pups. Uh, another bitch called Nellie who has seven pups. And Nellie, when I bred her, I was 99% certain she was not in well. Uh, she looked no more in pup than I do. And I thought, damn it, I need to put another bitch too. 
just to be on the safe side, so I pressed another bitch. And sure enough, Nelly was in pup after all. So I ended up with more pups than you can shake a stick at. But so we got plenty to choose from next year. So I have um, trying to think now. We have well over twenty pups. We probably close to thirty pups for next season. I I I, I likely will not keep all of them out. I have, excuse me. I have a few friends that are that you know they're short on pups. So I'll I'll probably uh, draft a few of the pups out when they get up a little bit more. So, so what are you uh, no, what are you doing with them now when they're you know when they're little? What do you start? How do you start introducing them to the life of hunting? So right now they are all just they're still mums are in. Um, this is the first night actually that um, the, the litters have not got their mother through the night. I gradually just wean them away so they'll uh, the bitches will go back in there in the, tomorrow morning. Um, just to just to more or less relieve the bitches of any excess milk that they will have produced, and it also stops them from getting um, uh, mastitis and that kind of stuff. So, um, so then over the next week, I'll gradually just wean them completely. Next week, ten days they'll be so in sort of ten days time, ten days, two weeks they'll be completely off the bitches. Then, um, then. Um, then we'll give them all our shots, make sure we, we give them all our shots. And then the three litters that are all within a week of each other, they will all, I'll put them all together in one big yard. And they will, they will grow and get big. And then we have members come and put leaves on them and drag them around. You know, in, in England, we always used to have a great bunch of farmers and landowners that would walk puppies. And for some reason or another, it doesn't, it, I don't know if it's just a Keswick thing or, you know, even London, where we were up in London in, in Canada, we didn't seem to have the puppy walkers. And I I'm not sure why, I don't know whether it's just not an American thing or a Canadian thing um, or whether it's just people don't have time to do it. Um, but typically in England, we, you know, a lot of the farmers and, and members would take a, a couple of pups and just learn them their names, teach them their names and, you know, teach them, you know, a bit of recall and they'd quite often when they get a bit older, they'd, they'd go out and exercise their horses and the pups would follow them and it just gets them kind of used to as many things as they possibly can, you know, other dogs and cats and, and all that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, it just doesn't seem to be a thing here. Well, so, if you do want to send any to Texas, I would happily take some puppies for a while. And we also do it in, we do it in New Mexico. We, we walk puppies. We've, uh, I've had, right. uh, I've had, ooh, I think four now, um, two sets of two. Um, uh, right. and then, you know, I had to take a little break, but yeah, we do it here. We farm them out. I, I, I and, did manage the, the, the first litter that, that we had out of the old girl's secret. Uh, there's a, there's a gentleman who just recently came into the neighborhood. He's English guy. Uh, and I hate to name drop, but he's apparently um, big pals. He's a guy called uh, Guy Pally, who's who's big pals with um, uh, Prince Prince Harry, and he's just bought a property in Keswick Country, and he hunts for the Duke of Beaufort, and he came over to the kennels, and, and we got you know chatting and stuff. He said, "Yeah, I'd love to to walk some pups." So he actually walked a couple of pups, and and I said, he said, "Well, how long do how long do do I have them for? You know, am I obligated? How long how, how long have I signed in for these?" And I said, "You know, it is just as long as you can tolerate them." So yeah, he, <laughs> he had them till they were about um, I think they must be about six seven months old now, and 
they were they were digging his garden up and terrorizing everything. <laughs> so he's like, all right, I've had enough. Come and take them away. So, and I always used to be standard form in England. I think I always used to say, you know, take take them and and when they become total hellions, you can bring them back. So, um, but I can't I, yeah, I tell you how many fly masks all. I lost. Like horse fly masks, like <laughs> so many. <laughs> they're, they're such thieves. They pinch everything. I mean, it's I, it, when we were up in London. My wife, she'd go to a st- that she had friends that had a big barn down the end of the road, and she'd take pups there just to get used to things. And and all the girls would be going, "Has anyone seen this? Has anyone seen that?" You know, they go around and they pinch anything, pinch you know, boots and polo wraps and like you say, anything that was lying on the ground. Uh, you know, groom and brushes and everything. They just got all got picked up and, and ran off with. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's it's. I, I just wish we had a few more puppy walkers here. It, I think it's it's it just just rounds them up a little bit more. Just rounds their their education of what's going on around. You know, it's just not so much of a, a shell shock when they when they get into the big bad world. You know. Well, and just I'm just gonna say in case listeners don't know, walking puppies is not like literally going and walking puppies. It's you actually take them into your home and keep them for six, seven, eight, nine months and teach them their name and teach them some commands. And or then... as short as three weeks as I've had before now. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a few weeks, but, you know, something just to help help get them and, and socialized and, yeah. Yes, yes. And even just that short spell of time is, is invaluable to them. Uh, when we were in London, I had a very good friend who, who had a, ran a big uh, riding facility down the south end of London, and she used to do summer camps. And I used to send all my pups I'd rotate them out. Uh, she rotated uh, students out, the, the camp students, and the pups used to just get mauled to death by them. And it was the best thing ever. I mean, I, I wish I could find something similar here. She set up a big a big pen for them, and I'd rotate them out every, you know, every couple of months. I'd take her a fresh set. <laughs> and they'd come back, and they were completely kid-broke. They were awesome. <laughs> well, so, it's yeah, great, too, for... When they retire, you know, I like my yeah. my dog Dookie. He, uh, you know, he I walked him as a puppy, and then he came back to me yeah. when he retired, and yeah. you know, he was totally like leash broke and remembered sit stay down. You know, he rem- remembered everything I taught him, and he was yeah. he transitioned to house life in a nanosecond. You know, yeah, he yeah, yeah it was I, like I, there was no thing. transition. So. Yeah, that's the one thing I do. Another thing I like about the American hounds is they do seem to transition way, way better to a retirement than than English hounds. English hounds are just just so driven and so I, I hate to say it, but kind of coming from an Englishman, they're just so mutton headed. You know, they just they get you know they just know what they know. Whereas American hounds just seem a little bit more chillax. You know, the 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 old girl sequin who we just. Um, we the, the the two members, uh, husband and wife that both hunt with us. They they were they have an old deer hound and their old hound passed away a few months back. And they said, "Did you have an, any any of the older hounds that you want to retire?" And I told them about Sequin, and they came and met her and walked out one day. And they said, "Oh, I think she'll she'll settle in great." So they took her away, and she never messed on the floor once. They let her out at night. She goes and does a business, comes back in. She's loving the air conditioning. Life's <laughs> great. You know, they sent me videos and photos of her, and she just, she's loving life, you know. So it, 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 it just, it warms your heart when you see that, you know. It's fantastic, you know. Really, really cool. 
Whereas an English foxhound would be tear us up, up up the mountainside and he'd be off, you know, just <laughs> create an absolute hell and havoc up on a mountainside. Whereas the American hound's like, yeah, no, this is good. I'm just going to sit in the air conditioning. This is this is fine and dandy. So it it it's the different breeds. I think is 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 very different. The 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 American and the Penmere down and the, you know even the crossbreds to a certain extent they seem to adapt much 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 better to retirement life. It's those hard headed Brits that are just you just can't can't knock it out of us. <laughs> so what my 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 last question is from from the time the pups are born about how long does it take it before they're ready to go out in the hunt field so it depends it depends generally um i like to try and i like to try and have my hounds at least at least around uh, i've i've entered them as young as as like sort of 13 14 months but i prefer to have them about a year and a half um these pups I bred this time round, they're they're borderline being almost too late for me. I really like to have my pups in January, February time, March, you know, and then they've they've got lots. It's not just a physical thing; it's the mental thing. I think it, it takes a long time for them to to mentally be able to cope with with asking them what we ask of them. I mean, we, you know, and it and it depends from area to area, but I mean, sometimes we can have massive big fields of horses that, you know, we're hunting away and they have to be able to deal with it. They get spun out. They have to be able to deal with getting past sometimes, you know, 70, 80 horses, you know, they've got to get past them on a trail or something like that. And they have to be mentally, you know, prepared for that kind of stuff. And, you know, they may be, they may look, physically mature and well but mentally is a different thing so I, I, I like to personally I like to them at least around about 18 months I have like I say I have entered them earlier and I think a lot of it just depends on the hounds you know I mean I in up in London I had pups that I entered them and it, it, they just didn't cope with it and you know we'd just say okay just put them away and we'll we'll, we'll try them again either later on in the season or hold them over for the next season, you know, and sometimes some of the best towns I've ever had have done that, you know, they just, just hasn't worked out for them in the first, you know, month of hunting. They just, they can't cope. And you, you come back and, and try them again the following August and suddenly they're like, Oh yeah, I, yeah, I got this. Yeah. I know what it's all about. So it takes, it just takes a, a little, it, 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 they're the same as humans, you know, it just depends. Yeah, the, exactly. But, but, but on the most part, I, I, I like to try and, aim for that sort of 14 to 18 months kind of window for them and they on the most part generally they're 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 mentally able to to deal with it so well, yeah that's 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 my optimum kind of window <laughs> yes and then like you said it's a it's a lot like people and that you know different different hounds are going to mature in different different speeds but we yeah. have sadly yeah. run out of time and I think we're going to have to have you back on a different episode and talk more about actual hunting. This has been delightful. So if our listeners yeah, no, want but, to get in touch with you or learn more about Keswick or they're maybe in your, your area, how would they get in touch with you? Um, look me up on Instagram. My Instagram is Hunt Away Kennel. 
um, or look me up on Facebook, Paul Wilson. You can find me. I'm not. I'm. I'm not a. I'm. <laughs> I'm. am not hiding from anybody. I'm there. It's. It's a pretty open Facebook. So yeah. Um. And and the same for for Instagram. So, um. If they want to send me a direct message, if they want to hunt or or any of that kind of stuff, just send me a direct message and I'll give you give them my phone number and we can chat on the phone. Wonderful. Well, thank you. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Two of my top top five favorite topics right there, puppies and off-track thoroughbreds. So it's been a great fun show, but I think it's time to do the closing up bits, guys. You can find Coverside online at ecoveredside.net or the digital edition at issuu.com slash ecoveredside. That's E-C-O-V-E-R-T-S-I-D-E. Tara can be found on Instagram at TN Tibbets. You can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. You can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. And if you missed the live show, you can still listen to the recorded version on our website, our affiliate websites, or any podcast player. You never need to miss an episode. Thank you so much to our sponsor, eCoverside. Good night. Good night. <laughs>